What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, we look at the following stories. OECD finds big success in U.S. anti-corruption efforts. Menke Sung reports from the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Clawbacks in FCPA enforcement. Dick Casson explains in the FCPA blog. Investor protection at the PCAOB, J. Robert Brown, in the NYU Compliance and Ethics blog. Can lawyers be CCOs? Only if you rewire your legal brain. Nicole DeShino takes a look in Corporate Compliance Insights. Oxif pays cheated investors. Dylan Tokar from the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Mike Volkog takes a look at the scourge of human trafficking in a two-part series from his Corruption crime and compliance blog. Getting rid of corruption enablers, Rick Messick and the global anti-corruption blog. Corporate compliance and governance under the Biden administration. Michael Peregrine looks in the DNO diary. And Katie Smith is back with part three of her four episode month in the compliance life. Additional blogs and insight from Tom and Jay all on this week in FCPA episode 230. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 230 for the week ending November 20, 2020, a $20,000 a day lawyer edition. And as much as I would like to tell our audience that lawyer is me, unfortunately, um, it is, of course, the late, great Rudy Giuliani. He of dripping uh, hair wax and hair dye onto his collar during press conferences, who allegedly charges the Trump administration 20K a day for fantasy football, excuse me, legal <laughs> representation. But be that as it may, Tom and Jay are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics articles which caught our eye. So, Jay, what say ye? I say let's dive in. It's a, it's a great week ahead and uh, look forward to going through the stories with you, Tom. So, Jay, first up, some really good news for the Department of Justice or Securities and Exchange Commission and really uh, anti-corruption enforcement in the United States as the OECD has issued their phase four report. The OECD has a working group which peer reviews anti-corruption uh, legislation and enforcement uh, of member countries and it praised the U.S. enforcement action against foreign bribery. I need to disclose, Jay, that I was part of the uh, uh, team that met with the OECD on this. So I was a part of this process for the DOJ. And um, they uh, really lauded the DOJ's enforcement and SEC over the past 10 years. The last report was in 2010. They did bring up a couple of points that I think are, are certainly worth mentioning. Uh, the first one was additional protections for whistleblowers. Uh, so this may have been in the context of the um, uh, Supreme Court decision, which uh, said that whistleblowers have to go to the SEC 
to obtain Dodd-Frank whistleblower protection. Of course, you can have uh, Sarbanes-Oxley whistleblower protection, but it's uh, uh, not a forward pay type of protection. It's only back pay. So that's certainly something that hopefully the new SEC and the new uh, administration will work uh, to fix. That's the digital realty case. So a really good news. Uh, the um, Once again, praising FCPA enforcement and the U.S. really leading the world in international anti-corruption, anti-bribery enforcement. So next up, uh, Tom, we've got a, seems like a weekly visit from Dick Casson over at the FCPA blog. Uh, today, uh, we're going to look at five things that you want to know about executive compensation clawbacks as they relate to FCPA matters. Last month, DOJ and SEC opposed a $3.3 billion in financial penalties against Goldman Sachs for the 1MDB imbroglio. Goldman's boards also announced to claw back $174 million from former and current execs. So number one, what's the legal basis for clawbacks in FCPA cases? Clawback provisions in executive employment agreements are now common. They typically allow a company to recover previously paid compensation or withhold future comp in cases of intentional misconduct or gross negligent conduct. Two, do corporate FCPA and defendants automatically win cooperation credit from the feds for imposing clawbacks? The DOJ and SEC have never publicly said they require or expect companies to impose clawbacks clawbacks, in FCPA cases. Clawbacks aren't mentioned in the Federal Sentencing Guidelines, the FCPA Resource Guide, or the DOJ's FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy. For now, then, let's assume that DOJ and SEC don't require or expect companies to impose clawbacks. Three, but do clawbacks help companies resolve FCPA cases? Probably. The DOJ's FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy discusses cooperation credit for appropriate remediation in FCPA matters. Any additional steps that demonstrate recognition of the seriousness of the company's misconduct, acceptance of responsibility for it, and the implementation of measures to reduce risk of repetition, including measures to identify future risks. When the DOJ is evaluating a company's case for cooperation credit, clawbacks could tick boxes under FCPA corporate enforcement policy for appropriate discipline of employees. Four, are companies that have contractual clawback rights required to use them in FCPA cases? No, imposing clawbacks is at the discretion of the company. And five, are clawback provisions and employment agreements a good idea? As always, there are unintended con- con- consequences. Finally, here, boards, oops, sorry. Finally, boards are reportedly reluctant to enforce clawbacks. Why? Because directors are uncomfortable adjudicating guilt. They aren't equipped for the task, and they could be accused of selective enforcement or denying of due process and so on. Uh, As always, we link to this in the show notes. Tom, what's next? Jay, next up uh, from the uh, New York University uh, Compliance and Enforcement blog, a copy of uh, remarks, rather, by... Uh, J. Robert Brown, Jr., a member of the PCAOB, who talked about the evolving role of investor protection at the PCAOB. I would commend this to anyone who's interested in the PCAOB. 
because it's a wide-ranging set of remarks. He talks about the uh, uh, creation of the PCAOB. It's almost 20 years now. It came directly out of the Enron and WorldCom scandals at the, at the top of the uh, century. And uh, he talked about the mission of the PCAOB and really to uh, have uh, audit uh, public companies Previously, firms that audited public companies regulated themselves, and self-regulation meant they wrote their own rules and standards, expected each, inspected each other, um, and public did not play a role in this. And after Enron and WorldCom, uh, particularly around Arthur Anderson, I think Congress felt there was a need for oversight over auditors. So the PCAOB was created. Uh, it was designed to have transparency because that's essential to accountability and investors in the public can't provide input and advice on what they don't know. Um, Brown believes this is something the PCAOB has struggled with, but um, he proposes some changes to improve transparency, which is more organizational transparency, transparency and uh, public disclosure. So uh, we don't often talk about the auditing role. We talk about internal audit and, and perhaps an external auditor from time to time, but really, uh, the purpose of this podcast doesn't go into the nuts and bolts of auditing, but so, uh, but it's something that every compliance practitioner needs to be aware of. Obviously, if you're a public company, you're subject to uh, SOX, and having a public company or, or rather a, a reputable audit firm uh, look at your books and records and certify them. You have to certify up through SOX, and that has huge implications for the FCPA internal control provisions. So I hope our listeners will uh, take a look at this. And we'll hopefully follow it up when he publishes part two of his speech. So next up, we ask the question, can lawyers be chief compliance officers? The answer may be only if you rewire your legal brain. This comes to us from Nicole Deschino on the Corporate Compliance Insight blog. Should your next chief compliance officer come from the business ranks of your company rather than the legal team? Dennis Jake, a vice president and deputy chief compliance officer at Orthofix, says yes. He made the comment at the SCCEE, rather SCCE virtual conference in September, and this got Nicole to be thinking, is a legal background a help or a hindrance for professional working in compliance? And if it's a hindrance, how can those of us who spent formulative professional years as practicing attorneys overcome the background to become a first-class compliance specialist? First, let's look at the evolution of the CCO. 20 years ago, most companies demanded that their compliance officers be lawyers. The profile of a typical compliance officer was somebody out of the government, a kick-butt litigator who was going to come in and read the riot act to a lot of people. A new trend emerged about 10 years ago. Rather than looking for enforcers, companies were beginning to request compliance officers that could also act as educators. While most company officers were still attorneys, Companies wanted individuals who could befriend key shit stakeholders and get to know where the skeletons were. The results were telling. Thirty. I'm sorry. Earlier this year, a LinkedIn poll took a look asking professionals to weigh in as to how important it is for a compliance officer to have a JD. The results were telling. 31% of the respondents said it was not at all important while only 11% said JD is essential. The remaining 58% of respondents indicated that a large degree was nice to have or very useful. So this seems to have ignited an under-the-radar controversy. 
In conversations with other compliance pros, it's been observed that most CCOs do not need a legal background. Jackie Cheslow, the global compliance program leader at IEEE, who does not have a law degree, said she strongly disagrees with any push to have a lawyer as a CEO, CCO. Compliance is what it is today because we are a blended profession, she said. We need all kinds of talent. Those who disagree with this position tend to do so quietly, perhaps to avoid risk offending friends or colleagues. The trouble with lawyers, Murray Granger, county manage, country manager for Spain and Portugal for business keeper AG, disagrees. He says lawyers serving as compliance officers often lack the key characteristics needed to guide a company through risky waters. A person absolutely does not need to be a lawyer to be a good compliance officer. Cheslow has observed a similar problem in that it can be difficult for some lawyers to take their legal hat off. While something may be legal, it's not always ethical. So if our legal training isn't always a benefit, how can those who are recovering lawyers retrain their brains? So first, retrain your brain. Sometimes people aren't humble enough to say, I don't know or I need more information. It's important to recognize where your training may be blocking you. The best way to combat, combat that, the negative aspects of your lawyerness brain, is to actively embrace learning. <clears throat> to do so, seek out experts. Lawyers working as a compliance professional should look to colleagues who have complementary skills and talents. To help them build an effective program, they should seek out data scientists, auditors, marketers, HR professionals, and more. Next thing to do is to practice diplomacy. Empathy, the capacity of working with people, is very important. A CCO should have navigational skills across the organization. Relationship building is not about legal skill and may require practice. Lead and they will follow. Cheslow takes it a step further, insisting compliance professionals must do the hard work of understanding how and why their colleagues believe in behave in certain ways. This must become, they must become social scientists. Hone your business skill. Many legal professionals, even those in-house, have spent limited time working in the business sides of the organization. By understanding how a company operates, it can be a key, key to building successful compliance program. If you are joining a compliance organization from outside law practice or from the internal legal department, make sure you take the time to truly learn the business. And finally, a call to action. Keep growing and flourish. So after all of Nicole's research, did she decide whether a background in legal works for you or against you in the compliance field? In a true lawyerly fashion, her conclusion is it depends. She believes that lawyers who are humble enough to rewire their brains can make excellent compliance professionals. Those who believe they already know, know everything they need to know and, and advance to succeed They'll have a much harder time. The key, it seems, is continued growth. Jay, next up, we have, uh, I think, a, a really feel-good story, and it's a big win for the fight against bribery and corruption. And this involves restitution in a FCPA case. Listeners will recall the uh, Oxif settlement. At one time, it was in the top 10, uh, no longer. But OGSIF paid bribes up and down Africa to obtain projects. One of was a mine in Congolese, and the or in the Congo, and the um, uh, person or group who was awarded the license 
uh, after the bribe was paid by Oxif. They basically stole it from a Canadian company called Africo, who held the license for what was called a, a Kala Kundi uh, project. And this was a, um, a cobalt copper mine. And the um, Canadian company had raised approximately $150 million U.S., was ready to uh, open the mine, and they were notified that they had lost the license. Um, this was, I think, about '07, uh, maybe. And they fought this uh, license stripature, and, uh, but it wasn't until the Oxif settlement that it became clear to them, uh, even though they were in legal proceedings, what had happened, and that was that Oxif had paid bribes to, to get the uh, license taken away from them. So uh, investors in Africa settled, or excuse me, uh, sued um, for restitution because claiming that they had the license and they had the right to develop the mine and they sued for law, basically lost profits. And they interceded or intervened in the case after Oxif uh, settled with the government. Uh, and the government eventually took uh, the investor's position. Oxif uh, decided not to oppose uh, the motion. So they were awarded some $138 million. And that was distributed to the investors who lost out because of uh, the illegal actions of Oxif. The, uh, this was not just uh, monies invested. This was actually lost profits. So this is a very strong case. It's a very strong precedent. It's certainly a unique set of facts because you are able to identify the persons who were harmed, and that is the investors here who lost the opportunity to develop the mine. But in the FCPA world, this was a very big deal. And uh, I don't know if it's the first of its kind, but it's certainly uh, one of the first. And hopefully this can be another part of the incentives for companies not to engage in bribery and corruption uh, uh, in violation of the FCPA. Thanks, Tom. Next up, we have an article coming to us from Elizabeth Slim, who is a senior consultant at the Volkov Law Group. And she joins our friend Michael Volkov in a two-part series to take a look at the scourge of human trafficking and financial red flags. And this comes to us from Mike's Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. Human trafficking has become one of the most profitable forms of international crime. At an estimated $150 billion worldwide per year, it ranks third to drug trafficking and counterfeit goods. There are an estimated 40.3 million victims of modern slavery around the world, and it is believed that profits range from 13000 for one forced laborer to as much as 100000 or more annually per sex trafficking victims. A person is enslaved when someone is treated as if he or she were owned by another person. Although slavery is highly illegal under both federal and international law, It continues to occur on a global scale due to how lucrative the profits have become. Modern human trafficking and slavery practices encompass a variety of disturbing channels and behaviors, including kidnapping, assault, fraud, forced labor, debt, bondage, servitude, and forced marriage. Exploitation includes, for example, exploiting people for prostitution or sexual favors, forced labor, or practices similar to slavery. Many examples of trafficking operations have garnered public outrage, especially the Jeffrey Epstein matter that came to light. In June, in 2016, a jury found a couple from Stockton, California, 
guilty of forcing their foreign-born housekeepers to work 18 hours per day without compensation and on minimal food by creating an atmosphere of fear through physical and verbal abuse. The Liechtenstein Initiative for Financial Sector Commission on Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking is an international commission that was launched in 2018. The Liechtenstein Initiative aims to foster public-private partnerships by placing the financial sector at the heart of global efforts to eradicate modern slavery. This report provides a framework for the financial and professional sectors to demonstrate their actions taken to accelerate the end of this scourge. As we have seen, the private sector must take an active role in combating human trafficking and slavery by detecting the red flags and reporting to law enforcement. Human traffickers, like all criminals, rely on the international financial system to facilitate their crimes and to disguise proceeds from illegal activities. Traffickers open bank accounts to deposit and launder illicit funds, purchase airfare, train tickets, and bus rides. On October 15th of this year, the U.S. Department of Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, issued a FinCEN Supplemental Human Trafficking Advisory. The document updated the 2004 update, which identifies several red flags for financial institutions. I'll quickly run through the four typologies. Typology one involves front companies, which are businesses that operate as legitimate entities but commingle illicit funds with legitimate funds. Typology two involves unlawful and exploitative employment practices, such as visa fraud and wage retention. Typology three involves funnel accounts where traffickers may use to launder money. A tunnel, excuse me, a funnel account is a bank account that is established so a criminal can deposit funds at one location, say Los Angeles, and the criminal's co-conspirator can make a withdrawal at an ATM somewhere else, such as New York City. And finally, typology four involves alternative payment systems, such as credit cards, prepaid cards, mobile payment applications, and convertible, convertible virtual currency. To root out these common indicators of criminal activity, financial institutions must understand the baseline of normal customer behavior with respect to living expenses, purchases, food consumption, and hotel stay. FinCEN's recent guidance also provided a list of concerning behaviors for financial institutions' frontline customer-facing staff to escalate their respective compliance or fraud departments. And again, we link to this all in the show notes. Story sort of deals with a similar issue, but it's uh, a corruption enablers. And Rick Messick, co-founder of the Global Anti-Corruption blog, wrote a really good piece about uh, the international money laundering and indeed bribery and corruption system does not uh, work without enablers who set up these shell companies and help uh, the corrupt officials to hide money. So he writes that we need to really put the corruption enablers out of business and this would include by making all corruption enablers subject to any uh, money laundering laws that uh, the enablers include everyone from lawyers to law firms, uh, to financial institutions, to accounting firms, uh, anyone who helps someone set this up. Uh, next uh, is to make asset hiding a more serious crime. And here he relies on uh, UN uh, guidelines uh, to help uh, uh, create uh, criminal sanctions around this. Three is deny professional uh, privilege protection to investment transactions, making them 
so that if lawyers are involved or uh, lawyers' uh, accounts are involved, there's no privilege uh, in those. So uh, I thought a really pr- uh, thought-provoking article by Rick, as always, I should note, and that uh, I think uh, the fight against money laundering and terrorist financing is going to be moving more to the uh, commercial corporation front, Jay, as the bad guys um, navigate away from banks because they have such robust AML programs to more soft targets, which right now, unfortunately, are commercial uh, corporations. Thanks, Tom. In the last article we'll take a look at today, uh, we've got a guest post from Michael Peregrine, who is a partner at McDermott, Will & Embry. And this is a guest post to the DNO Diary blog from Kevin LaCroix. And uh, we ask Biden in the boardroom what to expect on corporate governance from the new administration. A Biden administration can be expected to have a notable impact on corporate governance, both through specific proposals and how its policies influence state registration, legislation, best practices, formulation and board conduct. During their long presidential campaign, progressive candidates floated several proposals on corporate governance, including the Affordable Capitalism Act, ending the Too Big to Jail Act, and the Corporate Executive Accountability Act. But in the absence of a voter blue wave remaking the composition of the Congress, the legislative appetite for such aggressive legislation would appear to be quite slim. That doesn't mean, however that some of the related themes won't find their way into administration proposals. For example, it is fair to anticipate proposals that establish basic goals, not requirements for diversity, gender equality, and worker representation in the board. In addition, progressive interest in issues such as corporate responsibility, worker support, just wage, and dignified retirement, and executive pay equity may prompt increased engagement of the board's audit and compliance. Along the same lines, the Biden administration is likely to be supportive of corporate social responsibility concepts and other manifestations of what it means to be a value-driven organization. But perhaps the most immediate, if indirect, governance impact will arise by the force of example, not by law. That is the changed expectations of age as it relates to the corporate leadership Example, board membership and CEO service. As is well known, President Biden, President-elect Biden will be 78, the oldest president ever to take office. Corporate governance trends over the last 10 years have sought to balance legitimate benefits of director experience with needed focus on matters of director turnover, age, diversity, and retirement requirements. The images of a 78-year-old president-elect performing on a highly public stage may prompt board governance committees and sitting directors approaching retirement mandates to revisit the wisdom of age-based tenure limitations. Yet, as fair as this may be, it also presents an equally important governance challenge to the extent that board composition selections may become more generous with respect to the seniority of age the existing tenure of older directors may lengthen. This may lead to reduced board turnover levels, which in turn would limit the membership opportunities for diverse candidates. Betting on the policy orientation of a new administration is really a safe play, but planning for the potential of a particular orientation is often the smart one. 
In this instance, corporate boards have the advantage of clear policy markers from positions articulated throughout the campaign as to how the Biden administration may impact corporate governance, whether directly or indirectly. Nobody can predict the future, but these Biden policy markers should not go unnoticed by corporate boards. Contingency planning in this regard will help provide corporate boards with greater flexibility in terms of time and options should the new administration make or provide impetus for meaningful change in the governance law and principles. Uh, We are on to week three of the month for the compliance life. What did you and Katie Smith speak about this week? Jay, we had a really interesting discussion on something that really I, I don't think is talked about, not not simply not enough, but not at all. And that is, when is it time to move on? Um, Katie uh, had some uh, thoughts about that. Uh, one was, if you have an incredible opportunity, laterally upward or balanced life. Second, if, if you become jaded and your op- objectivity is dying a slow death. Uh, three, uh, you've become bored because you survived a crisis, stood up a program and looked for something to do. Um, a four is the situation uh, I'm not sure many of us would find ourselves in, yet uh, you just decide to um, uh, retire on the job and stay on autopilot. Um, five, it gets a little more nefarious, is the support for your program is simply not there within the corporation. And then six is uh, the um, die on the compliance hill. So if you have to do an investigation of the CEO or you believe that there has been illegal activity, but uh, you're not able to persuade senior management to take it seriously and it's ongoing. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting discussion. And as always, uh, Katie has some uh, really great thoughts. The Compliance Life is really a popular series. I think everybody enjoys hearing from uh, CCOs from their varied and different experiences. So uh, kudos to Katie for uh, her thoughts on this episode. So, uh, Tom, you had a special guest podcast uh, this week that had a bit of the Beantown flavor. Can you tell us who you spoke to and why you spoke to him? Sure. So I spoke to Dave Leefort. Dave, of course, is the uh, well-known uh, editor-in-chief of Compliance Week. Perhaps a little less known is Dave is a sports journalist by heart and worked at ESPN for many years. He set up the original uh, Boston uh, ESPN site when they had city sites um, he is a native Bostonian, so uh, he's been there his whole life, a huge sports fan. And I wanted to do a kind of a sports-themed podcast with Dave for quite a while. And um, Tommy Heinsohn died a couple of weeks ago. He was uh, probably my favorite Celtic. So uh, uh, I reached out to Dave, and uh turned out he had a lot of reflections about Tommy Heinsohn as well. Um, I can remember Heinsohn as a player, certainly as a coach, and as a uh, sports caster, Dave was a little uh, was aware of his coaching career, but really I got to know him through his sportscasting career, which of course was what's Dave's uh, one of his primary uh, roles in his prior life uh, at ESPN. So it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun talking about someone who meant so much to so many people. Literally since 1956, he's been associated with the Celtics. He has been part of each of the 17 titles of the Celtics. Uh, who can say that uh, these days? And we really got to, to talk about what Tommy Heinsohn meant uh, individually to us, which was really a lot of fun. So if you like sports, if you like leadership, uh, if you're a beanhead, um, you know, you're going to love this podcast. If you're a Laker fan, well, maybe not so much. Uh, if you're in the middle of the country like me, you might. Uh, so check it out. Nonetheless, uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. 
So uh, we are past the middle of the month, so we are well on our way to, let's see, it's November, so there's only 30 days in November. But what did you talk about in terms of uh, 30 days for a more effective compliance program this month? Uh, Jay, this month we're focusing on uh, the compliance life, uh, compliance profession, the compliance practitioner in 2020 and beyond. So I'm trying to look down the road, see what skills you'll need, see what the compliance function will need. And on Monday, uh, it was innovation through uh, key performance indicators. Tuesday, uh, compliance having a seat at the table. Wednesday, consistency as a compliance best practice, not something we talk about enough. Um, Thursday uh, was creating an inventory of metrics for compliance. And then today on Friday, it was leveraging AI and compliance investigations. It's really fascinating exploration of uh, looking down the road and for anyone in the compliance field or wants to get into the compliance field, this month is really the podcast series for you. So we've got a, one uh, webinar coming up this week. Can you tell us about what K2 Integrity has? Yeah, first of all, K2 Intelligence Finn has remonikered itself as K2 Integrity. So it's the same gang with a new name. Uh, and they have Managing Director Anna Kamawaska and Director Sean Rainey, Shannon Rainey, and they discuss uh, investigative due diligence, but Jay, in the acquisition context. It's a little bit different spin than we typically uh, think about DD, uh, but uh, certainly in this economic climate, I think that's going to become more important. It will be on uh, Wednesday, uh, December um, 2nd, not the 7th, but December 2nd, it's going to be at um, 1600 GMT, which is 10 a.m. Central and 11 a.m. Eastern. We have a link to registration and details in the uh, show notes. Great. So uh, that kind of brings an end to another exciting week on This Week in FCPA. If uh, anybody has comments or questions, Tom can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I can be reached at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA, episode 230 for the week ending November 20th, the $20,000 a day lawyer edition. Uh, As I like to close, I hope that um, although we may not all be together for Thanksgiving, that we will be there in each other's minds and hearts, and that I hope you will enjoy however you can the holiday season, and uh, be safe, be well, and we will talk to you. Uh, Will we not have a show next week, Tom? Uh, No show next week, Jay. Our next show will be Friday, December 4th. Woohoo! I get to eat, eat turkey and watch football and no compliance. Just kidding. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend and be well. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again, and we look forward to visiting with you again.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.